Good morning, everyone, and welcome to A Vision for You's second anniversary special edition. Today is Sunday, July 20th, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID number for Friday, July 18th, is 6669. Many people consider the program of recovery, the 12 Steps, as one of the greatest miracles of the 20th century. There's no telling how many lives have been touched by these 12 steps. It enables people of all different kinds, all different types, from different backgrounds, people who would normally not mix, to somehow come together and in spite of all odds, experience change, transformation, formation, a renewed life like never seen anywhere else. What a miracle. Twelve simple steps which anybody can apply. This morning, you will hear from twelve different voices, each describing in their own personal way how the individual steps have changed them. Twelve voices weaving together twelve stories of transformation creating a powerful message of hope and possibility. Step one, Joe M. from Minnesota. Good morning, Leah, and good morning, Vision for You. My name is Joe, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Minneapolis. I used to weigh 254 pounds. That's 120 pounds heavier than I am now. I binged every night in front of the TV and woke up the next morning with food hangovers with a warm head, stomach tension and nausea, bloating, and head rushes. I had to stop at the convenience store, the grocery store, the deli, the restaurant, the movie concession stand, the vending machine, the candy dispenser, the food kiosk, my kitchen cupboard and refrigerator, other people's kitchen cupboards and refrigerators, I had to eat off the floor, out of the garbage, steal food, eat burnt burnt and frozen food uh, and stale food, anything to get my fix. I would look in the mirror to see my face stretched out. I would see stretch marks on my hips. I would breathe heavily going up and down stairs and getting in and out of bed. With 120 extra pounds on me, my body had to work 10 times as hard to do everything. I didn't have a choice in how I was living. I was compulsed to overeat. I had to do it. Consuming food was not about nutrition or fun or recreation or socialization or reward or comfort or mourning or any of the things normal eaters use food for. For me, consuming food was for only one purpose, drugging myself to escape that inner core that was restless, irritable, and discontent. It got so bad for me, this overeating, that I came to Overeaters Anonymous. I come from an intellectual background, and doing something like a 12-step program was against the law in my world. But I was desperate and devastated, so I came to you. And I learned about a program of recovery which was unlike anything I had heard about, It wasn't a diet or a form of controlled eating. It was a way out of the life I was living. And I was so bad off by the time I came to Overeaters Anonymous, so demoralized, 
so hopeless, I was willing to listen to this program of recovery, the 12 Steps. I've been asked to talk about how Step 1 has changed my life. Step 1 says, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. When I think about the phrase, it changed my life, for me, that means there's a before and there's an after. And that from this point on, things cannot be the same. The door to my former life is closed. When I admitted my powerlessness over food, I finally conceded that I have an allergy of the body, that my physical makeup is different than that of a normal eater, and that to have relief from this allergy of the body, I had to entirely abstain from my trigger foods and trigger amounts of abstinent food, and that this behavior, this abstinent behavior, had to be permanent one day at a time, one meal at a time, one moment at a time. This signaled a change in my life because I was making a transition from thinking of myself as a potential normal eater to being a compulsive overeater, someone who has a permanent, unalterable condition. I went from thinking I could handle my food to someone who accepted I could not handle my food and I will never be able to handle my food through any form of self-will or self-control. Admitting that my life had become unmanageable made me realize that I needed a way to live that was very different than the way I had been living because being powerless did not just mean powerless physically. It also meant being powerless mentally. It meant accepting that I have an obsession of the mind. The literature says we had to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window, and I had to do that. Mostly the conception that I had to throw out was that I and I alone could handle my thinking. Admitting my powerlessness over food was life-changing because it thrust me into a state of entire abstinence, and in that state of entire abstinence, I was now forced to grab on to the rest of the program to save my own life because in the state of entire abstinence, I only have two choices, eat again or engage the 12 steps. There is no middle-of-the-road solution for somebody like me. Step one changed my life because it enabled me to accept that I was someone who, A, had to eat a certain way for my physical sanity and, B, had to work this 12-step program for my mental sanity. These stark realizations created a shift in my identity, and once that transition took place, I was never the same again, and I can't ever become the same again. Because even if I were to go back to the food, heaven forbid, and I don't plan on that, but if I were to go back to the food, I couldn't numb out like I used to, because I would know in my heart of hearts that it didn't have to be that way. That's what admitting powerlessness means for me. I know there's a solution because I've experienced it. So overeating could not do for me what it used to do for me. I couldn't eat into oblivion again. Before recovery, I didn't know there was a way out, but now I do. And that's what happens when you admit your powerlessness. You hit the point of no return, and that's where I've got to. The big book says the delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. Well, my delusion 
was powerful. It had been with me for many years, the delusion that I could handle my food and my life alone. So admitting that I was powerless over my food and that my life was unmanageable was an exercise in that delusion being smashed. There was no way I was going to get free unless the delusion was smashed. I could not get free until I admitted my powerlessness over food and that my life had become unmanageable. And my freedom today is dependent on reinforcing this admission of powerlessness. You know, understanding that my abstinence does not grant me power. Sponsoring others does not grant me power. Doing service within the fellowship does not grant me power. Carrying the message of recovery does not grant me power. I do these things because I am powerless, not because I think they're going to give me back the power over the food or over my life. While admitting my powerlessness over food and that my life was unmanageable was at first humbling and painful, it turned out to be a life-changing, powerful, beautiful thing I did. It cracked open the shell in which I suffered for so many years and allowed me a way forward. Admitting my powerlessness over food and that my life was unmanageable was a burden lifted because I didn't have to try to become a normal eater anymore. I didn't have to beat my head against a wall fighting for something that will never be mine. Instead, I can focus on what can be mine, a physically sane body and a mind that has a place to go now, which is the steps of the program. Step one has given me hope because it gave me the break from thinking that I had to use willpower to handle this problem, and it gave me strength because it pointed me in the direction of the other steps. It gave me a path to follow after admitting my powerlessness, and this was unlike any experience I had had before. So today, there is a before and an after. Before admitting powerlessness, I was hopeless. I was in a state of hopelessness. And after admitting powerlessness, I'm in a state of hope. And this is how step one has changed my life. Trying to exert power left me at the mercy of the food addiction, but admitting my powerlessness enabled me to have a new kind of power. And with that, I will pass. Thank you, Joe. Step two, Chelsea H. from New Jersey. This is Chelsea, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater for today. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's step two. So after conceding to my innermost self that I actually was a compulsive overeater, powerless over this food, and, and having a broken mind that tells me it's okay to keep going back to eat it and nothing else, I won't have to suffer the repercussions, and then learning on top of that that the only defense against it of this type of broken mind was a higher power. So then I'm left with the conclusion that I need to make about getting a relationship with power. So step two asks me, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself that could restore me to this sanity so that I don't keep repeating the same re- behavior and expecting a different result? That's really all it asked me. I complicated it. I complicated it by living through reason only because up until this point, I'm living by reason only. I'm an agnostic agnostic. 
And as such, I don't know. I'm, it's unclear to me whether there is a God or not. However, I was raised holy and sanctified, which is a very uh, extremely um, religious type of upbringing. So I had a whole lot of preconceived notions about what God wasn't. And I've lived by that. I lived by the disappointments that I thought God had brought onto me. But like Bill writes in on page 10 in paragraph 3 in the uh, text, is that he too believed in a power greater than himself. Somewhere inside of me, I knew it was something greater than me, but I wasn't willing to concede what it was or anything. And again, at that time, I didn't know that I even needed to know what it was. I was so busy being self-reliant, I didn't have time. I just didn't have time to deal with whether God could do anything for me because I could do what I needed to do for myself, even though what I was doing wasn't working out. So relying on self-reliant, being self-reliant, pulling myself up by my bootstraps, even when I was barefoot with nothing to pull, all this delusion of being able that I could write my own scripts, live the life the way that I needed to do. So now I'm being asked at this point in the work, in step two, do I believe now? Do I believe right now? Or am I even willing to believe? And if I don't believe, am I willing to at least have a change of mind? So having gotten all the information after taking step one, convinced and, and making the conclusion in my innermost self that I really am this thing, and that I need some kind of power to solve my problem as the solution, what am I to do? Well, this is proof that God has done for me what I couldn't do for myself, because on March 16th of last year, much like Bill had Ebby knocking on his door while he was wallowing in the booze, I was face down in the food, and I had my three Ebbies sitting right there in front of me, sitting in front of me, before me, declaring flatly that God was doing for them what they couldn't do for themselves. Three other women, compulsive overeaters with the same addiction that I had, able to say flat out without any type of hesitation that God was doing for them what they couldn't do for themselves. They had found a way out. They had found a way to stop doing what they were doing and to stay stopped. And the real beauty was they didn't have a desire to do it. And I wanted that. Well, how the heck did that happen? And they mentioned, and they talked, and they shared, and they went on to say that not only did they have this power, but it was their own conception. Whoa. And, and again, just like Bill, Bill says in the book that it floored him. Well, it, it knocked me back on my butt, too. You know, and, and, and again, I was agnostic. I was determined not to have anything to do with God because all that spiritual training I had, Bible studies, all the nightly prayers, couldn't even touch a bite to eat before praying, church three, four, five times a week and nights and all day Sunday, all that was really what kept me from saying, I don't want any part of that world because that didn't do anything for me. But when I heard I got to choose my own conception, that was my transformational moment. That was the moment that I really knew, and I actually didn't really recognize this until recently, because I thought all the steps were weighted equally. But for me now, and moving forward, step two, 
I need to do regularly because I keep thinking that I'm God. The transformational moment that I got to make my own conception, I could drop that whole anger against my other God. I could drop all that other anger and everything. I didn't have to know anything else. I just had this conceit of the possibility. Is it possible? And those three recovered women who were sharing, sharing the way out, they were sharing it with me, and they, had sh- they shared my compulsion. They knew it. They had a message that was so full of depth and weight that it shook me to my core. And I was pretty mangled, too, because I had crawled back in the rooms after having been in and out of the rooms, in and out of drive throughs in between meetings, sitting in meetings, not even hearing a word that was said, plotting my next good binge on the way home, pulling in drive through after drive through and getting home, eating everything, eating stuff on the way home, too, because I had to have a little something on the way home, so that way, in case I got a little peckish before I got in to consume this big binge that I was going to go on, and then crying in my tears. I wasn't doing a good job, and reason wasn't working. And having seen these women and heard them, and their message was so strong, I realized I do need this. And I became convinced I do need some kind of power. I'm not doing it. I've been in and out of these rooms, so I really became convinced of a need for power. And once I recognized that I needed to get a relationship with this power, I had to do, again, take other steps. (laughs) I had to take other steps. And at that point, closing up the um, self-loophole, wasn't something that I even understood at that time. And the book told me that. It said that even if you do say that you can, you may not have a full understanding of what's happening. But because these women had told me, I had heard the message of depth and weight. I saw in front of me, like Ebby, their roots had grass new soil. The possibility. I said, okay, if all step two asked me is, do I believe now or am I even willing to believe is it, can I change my mind? Then, okay, I'm on my way. I'm able to do that. That simple recognition that, okay, there's a possibility there is a power. I'm willing to believe. So once I answered that and I was able to then at least recognize I'm still agnostic. I don't know whether there is a God or there isn't. But I know it's not me now. And I knew once then, once I was able to let go of that, that I'm not God, I don't know if there is or isn't, I was able then to start a beginning, to commence, it says in the book. I was able to commence. And then, now I understand now, at that time I didn't, but developing and deepening that understanding are what the rest of the steps helped me accomplish. So once I was able to let go of self, my prejudice, as they talk about in the book, those vestiges of all the different things and, um, that I thought Chelsea was able to handle and do, I was able to set in the book to make a foundation, get a start, a cornerstone. Do I believe now or was I even willing to believe that there was a power greater than myself? Yes. And as soon as I said that, I was emphatically ensured that I was on my way. And it's so, such a beautiful thing because it was the cornerstone of my structure, like it says in the book. And I was just so grateful because now, on a daily basis, I remind myself that 
I am not in charge. In and of myself, I wouldn't be on the phone with you guys. I'd be plotting my next meal for the morning because I will have already eaten a full breakfast, but I would have to have a little bit more and be plotting what was for lunch and dinner. I'm not doing that today. Today, my primary concern is to how can I be of maximum service to you today? I asked my divine director, what can I do to be of service to others? I want to be the channel today through which that light shines for somebody else who's sick and suffering in and out of the room. I want to be quiet. I want to sit still at some point because that's an activity too, and that's when I receive the grace. I want to stay in a place of neutrality where I'm placed, and all that is a result of me answering the question, do I now believe, am I willing to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity? And with that, I pass. Thank you, Chelsea. Step three, Chaya P, Colorado. Chaya, star one to unmute, please. Can you hear me now, Leah? Yes, go ahead, please. Okay, great. Sorry. Sorry about that. I thought I was unmuted. Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Haya, and I am a very, very, very grateful recovered compulsive eater and bulimic living in Colorado, and thank you so much for this privilege of speaking on Step 3. So Step 3 says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. And, um, you know, it says in uh, the definition of, of decision is a conclusion or resolution reached after consideration. And, you know, for many years I've been in the, the Fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous for 27 years and I've been recovered for a very large part of that time and I'm very grateful with periods of, uh, of not, really not living in, um, the, 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 the steps that we live in at the end of the, the last three steps of the program and um, when I would get away from the, the program of recovery in the big book. And um, when I was feeling a few years ago that I was in a, when I was realizing I was in a thin body but my head was not in the place that I had learned for it to be, um, I went through the book again in a, in a very, very detailed way um, very much like what we, how we study, although it was in a very timely fashion. Um, we study the book here, and it takes a long time, but we, hopefully people are doing it in a much more timely fashion. And when I went through it, I had a completely different experience with step three. And that's why I asked, when, when Leah asked me to speak, and what step would I like to speak on, I wanted to speak on step three, because I never fully understood the implications um, of step three until this um, until this experience. So when we get to Chapter 5 in the book, it goes through, you know, our steps. It tells us that, you know, we won't fail if we, if we thoroughly follow this simple program, and it gives us an outline of the 12 steps. And then it says, you know, wow, like, this is, I can't do this, you know. And, and they say, as long as you're willing to go along spiritual lines, you know, that these are principles we've set down 
that are guides to progress. And then they give us the conclusions, the considerations, right? The considerations that enable us to make a conclusion. What are the considerations? It says, and we, can, we, we get these considerations through the chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and the doctor's opinion that precede those. And it says that we were, we were alcoholic or for us compulsive eaters and could not manage our own lives. Yep, check. Got that one. Right? That helped me with the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. That probably no human power could relieve my, alcohol, my alcoholism or for me my food addiction, my compulsive eating. Yep, check. Got that. I got that through there is a solution and more about alcoholism and we agnostics. And that God could and would if he were sought. And I got that as well through those chapters. So these three considerations that I made, now I can make a conclusion. And the conclusion is I have to, I have to turn my will and my life over to this care. And it tells me what do I have to do? And it says, now, now we have requirements here. And it says the re first requirement is that I begin, that I be convinced that any life run on self can hardly be a success. And that was a huge turning point. I cannot live any longer by self-propulsion. And it tells me, you know, essentially that I had to drive out self, but I couldn't do it on my own. I must have God's help. And I must, I must get rid of it. And it says, this is the how and the why of it. How I must quit playing God. Why it didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work me running my life. And it's, and it, it describes to me what happens when I have a life run on self. And then it describes to me what happens when I have a life where I sincerely take a position of letting, of turning my will and my life over the care and protection of God. That in this drama of life, in my life, I now have a director. I now have a principal. I'm the agent. I'm the actor in the show, not the director. And that this idea was, was the, the arch through which I can pass to be free. And I needed to be free. I was dying before I, you know, when, when I was in the food and the bulimia, that was a horrifying existence. And then to be in a thin body, not, you know, not compulsively eating, not throwing up anymore, not doing all those things, but yet still living inside my head on self and not understanding why I was in fear, why I was having, you know, trouble with, with the way I was feeling and the way I was thinking and relationships in my life that I knew could be better and I didn't know how. When I, when I was left with that, that's, that's a really difficult existence because I didn't look on the outside the way I felt on the inside. And this step was life-changing for me because it says when we, when we sincerely took this position, it's a position, I'm positioning myself. Remember, it's just, it, all it is is a conclusion or resolution reached after consideration. So I considered, wow, I am out of power and I need power. There's a power greater than myself that can restore the power. And it will if I seek it. 
and I need to turn my will and life over to this, this power. This is a conclusion. The decision is just the resolution, the conclusion. And it must be followed up with action. And that, my friends, is what was so profoundly changing for me. Um, that when I took this step, it meant, and it says in our book, this was only a beginning Though it's honestly and humbly made an effect, sometimes a very great one was felt at once. And I feel this each time I take another woman through the steps and we, we, get to, we, we get to step three, when that experience happens very often, I just recently had an experience with a woman. I mean, it was, you can feel that we were on the telephone because she's in another state. It was profound because I explained to her before we did step three, I just want to let you know what you're getting into. <laughs> and I equate it, many people have heard me share, I equate it with, you know, um, enlisting in the Army. Um, you know, when you enlist in the Army, it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> um, the Army, uh, you know, or the Navy, or the Air Force, the Marines, you know, it says it's a completely, complete 180-degree turn, you know, from your life that you're going, to need, you're going to get into physical shape. You're going to get your personal matters in order. You're going to increase your di discipline because every aspect of your life is going to have um, a, a discipline attached to it and that your life really isn't your own anymore, right? When a kid signs up and they sign on the dotted line, it's not just a, you know, just a, a fleeting thought. This is a commitment that now, guess who's in charge of your life? You know, the, the government's in charge of your life. They're going to dictate what you do. And are you ready to do that? And so when we do step three, I say, you know, are you ready to do this? Because you're, when you make this decision, when we take step three, you're saying, I'm not running the show anymore, and I am going to follow these disciplines that the remaining steps are going to teach me and then keep me on for the rest of my life, which we're gratefully going to hear today. Um, other people speak about the remaining steps. So this step right now is a decision to do all the other things that we're about to talk about when I, when I say pass. And are you ready to do that? And actually, most recently, we, we realized, you know what, not ready just quite yet. And the, the next day, the person listened to the meeting, and something shifted in the thinking and called me, and we discussed, and we both knew at that moment, you know what, you're ready. She said, I think I'm ready. And we took step three, and then we immediately launched in to the course of action. So this step three was a decision to follow a course of action. That's what it was. And so the course of action I had to follow was the skills that we learned in steps four through nine, which we're going to hear about, and then to stay on a daily basis in step 10 throughout the day from continuing to use the skills that I'm about to learn Step 11, which is to seek and, 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 and learn and grow in my relationship with God, praying for, for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. And then 12 is carrying the message. See, we become ambassadors in this program. That's what happens here. I become an ambassador to God. I represent God's will in all my activities. That's what it tells me. I actually used to think, you know, we, a lot of times we say our highest Thing is servant, but I really think it's ambassador. I'm representing. It's like not just serving. I'm actually representing. And I have to become that which I'm representing. And this step was that turning point. And I am so grateful that I understand today 
what step three means. I'm in it for the long haul. And I never fully, fully, fully understood that until I went through this experience and truly recovered from this hopeless state of mind and body. And I always remind myself, whenever I'm stuck anywhere else, I have to remind myself and I, remember, I remind the women I work with, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You took step three. And I'll close with last year, about six months ago, I had a physical issue and I was a little worried that it was um, a very serious physical issue and I, I had to go through some tests. And someone said to me, you know, are, you must be really scared. And I said, well, I said, I just want to know what it is. But you know what? I took step three. My life isn't my own. I'm, I have my life in the care and protection of God. So whatever it is that God wants for me, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to go through it. I just wish I knew already, right? I had to wait for the test. That was the part. I just had to practice patience and ask God to help me with my patience. But I took step three. I remind myself all the time, I took step three. And step three means that I'm going to do four through nine, or where I get to live today is I do step 10, step 11, and 12. And I am so excited to hear uh, the remaining speakers talk about those steps. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Chaya. Larry Kay from Illinois, step four. Leah, can you hear me okay? Yes, thank you. Oh, great. Thank you for your service. I'm so grateful to be alive. You know, I'd be dead if uh, if it wasn't for this program. Uh, step four, so we're going to get into action now, right? Step four says, may the searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I'm going to start out briefly by reading two journal entries of a man who, short ones, who was unwilling uh, to make a searching and fearless moral inventory. I was still in the throes of disease. It's December 24th, several years ago. I was absent yesterday. Good start to the vacation. We leave for Florida tomorrow, and I have all my food. I'm feeling good this morning. Good way to start the day. I may not go to the uh, Christmas Eve party tonight. Ugh, depends on what I get done today, packing, etc., and how the day proceeds. I'd like to go to a meeting this morning. Maybe I'll get some work done later. Need to tie up some loose ends. I want to affirm that abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception. I enjoy the feeling of strength from my higher power when I'm not binging. I get that strength from my higher power in the fellowship. My desire to follow the 12 steps feels strong this morning. Oh, I hope so. I want to participate in phone meetings when I'm on vacation. I need to get those call times before we leave. So much to do, so little time. Also, I want to have numbers to make outreach calls. Lots of anxiety over all I have to do. That was December 24th. Before I get on to uh, this, let me read the next entry, January 23rd. It's Saturday morning, and I'm preparing to go to a face-to-face meeting. Last night, I ate pizza, the whole pizza. I feel terrible shame over it, as I always do when I do not remain abstinent. I didn't sleep well. I slept on the floor downstairs. I feel physical aches and pains coursing through my body. Emotional pain is my constant companion. But I'm going to try to commit to abstinence today. I want so much to gain abstinence. Please, dear God, I pray that you will help me with this. I'm getting together with X today, later today. I enjoy spending time with her, yet I always seem to feel stress and immense anxiety over any type of relationship with women. Oh, I better clean up this house. Such a mess. I will just leave this to my higher power. Please, dear God, believe me of my anxiety over this. I'm listening to OA recordings on my computer for the first time in a long time. 
I've struggled with my program lately. I am indeed a compulsive overeater. I pray that I can change by God's power. See, that was a guy who was unwilling to work the steps precisely as they were laid out. And we talk about, um, we do a, a disservice in a way, in my opinion and my experience, to the newcomer by giving people the erroneous impression that how it works, these, ste- these action steps and the whole thing, however well-intentioned, that they'll get you well. They won't. They won't get you well. The tools didn't get me well. They were there. They're great. They're critical to support me as I work the practical program of action and have a spiritual awakening. So, you know, the dignity of choice, all these fun things, I think I'll, I'll dignify, you know, in a dignified way, choose pizza and Oreos, you know. I'll be a gentleman. All these things. Step four, you know, when basically, uh, in the interest of time, I'll just summarize that, you know, remember, we learned that alcohol is but a symptom of our real problem. My formerly fat body uh, and the food were symptomatic of the real problem. What was my real problem? We learned lack of power is our dilemma. We had to get down to causes and conditions, and that's what we're going to do in step four. Causes and conditions are merely another way of saying patterns of thinking and behavior that gave rise to our symptoms. So therefore, you know, we start upon a personal inventory. And this is precisely what we do in the fourth step. I'm taking specific action to examine my insights, what's going on. You know, Bill creates a metaphor here that that works well for me. He says a, a business which takes no inventory usually goes broke. Well, let me tell you something. As a going concern, I was broken and, and morally bankrupt. As morally bankrupt as they come, before embarking on this uh, critical, this critical step, it's a step. It's a fact-finding and fact-facing process. That's the same as searching and fearless with courage. Of course, you know it was uncomfortable. Of course, it was uncomfortable doing this step for the first time. That's why very few people will have the courage to get honest with themselves and bring a thoroughness to this process. You know, what's in it for me? I mean, the first three steps, that was easy enough. I didn't have to do a whole lot. You know, but in putting the food down, you know, I lost some weight. That, that's a benefit. You know, that's a, that's a self-centered ego kind of benefit. You know, look at me. Look at how handsome. Look at, look at me. I look. You know, self-consciousness still trumped God-consciousness at this point for me. Now, step four required me to search out the major flaws in my makeup which had caused my failure in life. I had a problem with living. Food was, was but a symptom. And what were its common manifestations? I mean, that's what we're looking at here. And as I find these facts, I'm going to face them. You know, I was in therapy. Maybe I'm the only one on the line that's been in therapy. I doubt it. I've, I uncovered lots of facts. Uh, for me, here's some of the facts. Failed marriages, lying, anger issues, mistreatment of others, inability to have any true form of intimacy with another person. The list goes on and on. I was the master archaeologist of facts about myself and mostly about you. The problem was I was disconnected from the power source, this higher power of, uh, you know, of my understanding. I was utterly incapable of facing these facts nor could I do so with courage. So I, I would find these facts in therapy. For years I spent digging. It was time for me to get a clipboard and a pencil and see truly what was going on in terms of the con- common manifestations. You know, resentments, fears, 
harms done to others, particularly sex conduct. You know, we all have sex problems, it says. We hardly be human if we didn't. I thought I was the only one. Thank goodness I learned I wasn't. So just as was suggested in the big book, I began to review my own conduct over the years. You know, where had I been selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate? Whom did I hurt? And that's based on on my experience. You know, the format is not what is most important to the successful consummation of completing step four. I love uh, the, the columns and the rows and so forth, and I use them. They help me to stay organized. But I tell you that they appealed to my perfectionistic instinct and also to um, my obsessive compulsive nature. So I wanted to languish in those and get it just right as though I was working on a dissertation. But I was in a race because the obsession of the mind was still at work. The allergy wasn't being elicited if I was, you know, 15, 20, 30 days abstinent. But the obsession of the mind was still alive and well, and that's why I had to race through these. But I could do so thoroughly, courageously, fearlessly. You know, and so it is, let's be clear, it's a fact-finding and facing process that's critical in this. And I used, like, Lori's sheets. They were great. But I, I know people that spend months, years, and then they pick up the food and they stop. If I thought that God wanted an essay with footnotes, I'd share that experience with you. Organization, yes, we needed to, to, to do that. Trying to do this alone without a recovered guide is like teaching yourself to fly an airplane by yourself because I'll try to reinvent anything. I'll look for shortcuts. Maybe someone else will, will treat it in the opposite way. They'll treat it, like I said, like a dissertation. They're on the five- to seven-year plan. You know, this is a race for time because as long as the obsession of the mind has been, uh, is there and has not been lifted, you're going to eventually pick up. That is indeed the case for me if you're a true, if you have a true alcoholic mind like mine. And the shame and remorse that I just read to you about, <laughs> you know, I didn't mean it. I didn't want to binge. I just did. I followed my nature. And it makes working the steps nearly impossible for a guy like me. It's been tried by others, including me, and it doesn't work. So I'm going to wrap up and I'm going to read uh, with, uh, in the interest of time, on page 70 uh, here in the big book, my playbook here. Suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so. But this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and have learned our lesson. Yet, if we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We're not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. I, I swallowed a big chunk of things. And thank God um, I've been able to, to move on. Uh, and uh, I'm just so very grateful. Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous, and with that, I'll pass, Leah. Thank you, Larry. Step five, Howard W. from Minnesota. Hi, Leah. Thank you for the invitation today. Um, Hi, this is Howard, a compulsive reader from Minneapolis. Um, Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Um, I was kind of pushed screaming and kicking into these inventory step by uh, my first sponsor who suggested right away as I um, 
asked her to, to be my sponsor after a year of experimenting and um, trial and error. Uh, I asked her to be my sponsor. Um, I, I did what she said, and she suggested that I read the big book every day. And uh, she said she did it at, uh, at dinner time and that it was a very valuable thing for her. And I said, well, you know, I've never been an alcoholic. I've never, I've never been drunk, actually, in my life. And she said, well, you know, change the word alcoholic to compulsive overeater and alcohol to food, and you may get something out of it. So um, at that point, I had really nothing uh, in my life that I wanted, and I liked what she had. So I did what she said. And so I started reading the big book. And after a little bit, she said, you know, you, I, I would suggest you do a moral inventory on uh, the wrongs you've done, very, very basic instructions, the wrongs you've done, um, get things uh, on paper in black and white. Um, and I said, well, again, you know, why would, uh, why would I do that? Um, and she said, well, this is what has worked for her. Um, and this is what she would suggest for me. And so I, th I said, well, uh, I'll think about it. Um, now, at this point, I was, I was young, and I actually had nothing going for me. So I went, um, so I was sitting in my one-bedroom apartment with my green shag carpeting and my secondhand furniture and sat down, and I did an inventory, and I spent over an hour on it. Um, and I put down uh, my family. I put down past girlfriend. I, um, and it, and it, it felt good. I was motivated. I wanted to be, I wanted things to change. I didn't want what I had. I wanted what she had. I wanted, I wanted uh, some of my dreams and hopes to come true, and they weren't. Um, and I started to learn in doing this, I started to learn a new language. I learned things like words like I'm sorry and I was wrong. I could have handled things better and you were right. You know, so it started to change my thinking and my mind and my, my perception and my expectations. Um, and so I did this. I put this down. I did this inventory. I called her the next day. I said I did this inventory. As you had said, um, I put things down. She said, well, you want to find someone you trust. You know, it could be a, a, a minister, a rabbi, um, uh, and, and give it to them and, let them, and, and just tell them. It's very important to just get this, get this out of you, to get this, you know, these, these things out of you. And I just said, well, do you have a minute? And... Um, and so I just read it to her, and I went through it with her, and she gave me some good directions. She gave me some good ideas. She um, you know, helped me to get out of this obsessing mind that was imprisoned by thinking about what things might have been, uh, about the mistakes that I had made, um, why oh why, you know, what, you know, why did things happen the way they happened, um, and, it started, and it started me in taking actions on these things on my list. Um, and she, of course, pushed me on to the, to the rest of, of the, the steps and the rest of the inventory. This is what got me 
out of the traps of my mind, looking at my part, um, looking how I create these emotional landmines in my life. Like I could, I could leave my family's house and be devastated. I, you know, they don't, they don't care for me. I'll never fit in. I'm never good enough. Um, I, I, there's nothing I can do. And, you know, I mean, nothing happened, but it's just this, this obsessive, negative mind. And pretty soon I walk out of that house, my, my mind starts going, and I fall off this emotional cliff, and the only thing I know how to fix that is to eat. So it's helped me in getting this inventory to sit down with another person, to share it with another person, to get honest with another person. It's changing me. It's, it's making a difference in my life. It's, make, it's making a difference in how I'm perceiving myself. It, it is a relief. You know? And in the big book, it talks about this. I mean, I felt great. I did this, and I felt great. And if you read page 75 in the big book, it talks about how you'll feel. It talks about the result if you do it and do it honestly and do it thoroughly. And, you know, that's, this certainly wasn't my first inventory. It wasn't my first fifth step. Um, I continue to do these. Um, but it talks about, you know, once, I, once we have taken the step with it, withholding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be perfect. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we have begun to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we are on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. I mean, that is a powerful promise. Those are powerful promises. And every time I've done this, I either feel this or or know that I haven't passed the test yet. I have to go back. I missed something. I have to go back and do this. So in this last inventory, I learned about um, the importance of getting, you know, accepting. Either I accept things and I move on, um, which is what I'm dealing with now with my sister who's, um, uh, who's, who's ill and is kind of going through the last stage of her life. I accept the reality of her sickness, and I am now trying to be of service to her. Um, I, I don't accept things, and I change, which I am doing. I'm looking at now my uh, issues with procrastination, which has been a problem with me. Uh, it's something that goes all the way back to my eating days, where I used to eat over it. And the trap was that I, I didn't like the procrastination, but I was also afraid of what happens when I when I caught up. You know, then what do I do? I mean, do I start gambling or something? I even checked out another 12-step program online, and I sent a note there you know, asking about membership and help, but they never got back to me. So I just do it through the inventory, just like I, I work through so many other things. I put it down in my inventory. I've gotten some insight in that. Um, so, so I accept and move on. Um, I don't accept and I change. Um, rather than my default setting is that I don't accept things and I don't do anything about it. You know? So this is really, for me, the power of the inventory. It gets me out of these traps in my mind. Um, it, it is, I love this step. I mean, it's, a, it's the, the action step. Um, it gets me to do something. It gets me to take, uh, take the steps to becoming better. It reminds me that this is a program that I have to change in. It reminds me that it's a, a day at a time. And it reminds me that I have to continue to go through this process. I have to then move on. I have to go through the rest of the inventory steps. I have to make this part of my life. I have to 
to, to, you know, for me, this is the spirituality. This is really the spirituality, this, these action steps in the program. I don't need anything else beyond this. I need to just practice these action steps where I, I am in a state of self-reflection. I'm looking at my own part. Um, I do service. Um, I, I abstain one day at a time. And, and this, is, this is really what it's about for me. You know, anything else that I get into beyond, you know, this basic spirituality in the program, this basic uh, opportunity to get things out of, my heart, out of my mind that don't go anywhere, there's no solution in my mind. I have to get them, get them in black and white, and I have to give them to another person, or else I just don't get anywhere. I just go through this. I'm just the, the, the mouse in, a, you know, in, in the in the in the circle, in the trap, going round and round and round again, and I get nowhere. So it, it helps me to, to, you know, keep things out of this trap in my mind, get them out, take action, and then I can move on. I can change and move on. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. Step six, Don C. from New York. Hi, everybody. My name is Don. I'm a compulsive eater and food addict from White Plains, New York. I've been in OA 32 years, uh, just celebrated 30 years of abstinence, maintaining a weight loss of about 185 pounds for 30 years. I came as an atheist, suicidal, and grossly obese. OA saved my life, literally, and helped me become a new person with a second chance at life, so I'm really grateful for that. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Willingness, willingness, willingness. I'm going to be very specific about what I did and continue to do because step six for me was the real beginning of of life change for me. To understand the mountain of work that I did on step six that began to really transform my life, you have to understand what I did on steps four and five, since four, five, six, and seven were a package for me. In four, or five, four and five, I started the action I signed up to do in step three. Identify the real causes and conditions, since eating was really a symptom, not the problem. At the core of my problem was ideas, beliefs, values, behaviors that set me up to feel the feelings. The feelings that led me to the food obsession, since I have the disease, that led me to the first bite, that led me to the out-of-control eating. I looked at the resentment, fear, and sex in the big book, but I had to go a lot further. I used Sister Ignatia's Rosary Hall fourth-step guide from Akron Hospital that she developed with Dr. Bob there. It was based on the seven capital sins and the Ten Commandments. The sins included anger, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, and sloth. The Ten Commandments were expanded far beyond their literal sense, as in there's lots of way to kill people besides physically. And then I looked at all the traits that Bill talked about in the 12 and 12 and steps 4 and 6, where he expanded on his examples of resentment, fear, and sex in the big book. He talked more about those three as well as the seven capital sins from Sister Ignatia, but additionally talked about other traits such as self-pity, self-righteousness, dishonesty, false pride, justifying, rationalizing, blaming, alibying, procrastination, and irresponsibility. I went even further using a 1965 guide uh, written by an AAer in Los Angeles that focused very, very heavily on the change process of steps four to nine. So I came out of four and five with a really good summary of my personality defects as well as 
beliefs and attitudes that didn't serve me well. I then began constructing, for step six, the solutions for each of these things. The objective was to displace the old thinking and behaviors with new thinking and behaviors, which generally is simply the polar opposite of the defect. I believe I've been given free will to make decisions, so my life is essentially a co-creation with the spirit of the universe, and it's not going to magically do for me what I need to do for myself. So the way I would show God that I was truly willing to change was to start practicing the new thinking and behaviors and deal with the implications of that new me. I, I learned to walk by walking. I learned to swim by swimming. I learned to speak by speaking. I learned to run by running. I learned to work by working. I learned to stop overeating by stopping overeating. I learned to work the program by working the program. In the same way, I learned to be accepting, honest, and unselfish by practicing acceptance, honesty, and unselfishness. So I learned to be a different person by being a different person. And that, I act my way into right thinking, not think my way into right acting. That's the way I see it. The more I act as if, the more I'm changing from within to truly become the kind of person I'm practicing being, as well as showing my higher power how willing I am to change. Now, specifically... Here's some examples of turning self-destructive beliefs into positive beliefs, which I began here at step six. I let go of the idea that my worth was dependent upon what others thought of me. I let go of the idea that I need everyone's approval to feel okay. I let go of the idea that self-sufficiency was somehow a virtue. I let go of the idea that somehow I was a prisoner of my rocky past and couldn't change. I let go of the idea that if I'm not totally competent in everything I do, I'm not a worthwhile person. I let go of the idea that people who don't behave like I think they should are basically no good. I let go of the idea that if things don't come out the way I think they should, it's okay to be angry and upset. I let go of the idea that my feelings are caused by other people and events outside me. I let go of the idea that achievement equals self-esteem. And lastly, example, I let go of the idea that if I truly surrender to God, God will take care of everything. Here's some examples of turning personality defects and the new behaviors that I started practicing. Controlling and self-centered. I began began trying to let go of expectations on others. Stop imposing shoulds and oughts on them. Stop writing scripts for how things are supposed to go. Practice tolerance. Practice live and let live. Accept what is. Work on changing what can be changed, which is mostly myself, of course, and accepting what can't be changed. I tried to learn to accept my human limitations and others' limitations, remembering I'm not in charge, I'm not God, I can't control others, but I can control my reactions. My controlling was just my response to my own fear, doubt, and insecurity. Self-pity and blaming. I started taking responsibility for myself and my actions, past, past and present. It's up to me how I feel. I am not a prisoner of what they think or do. I'm not a prisoner of my past. Recovery is not dependent on my past or on others, but on my relationship to myself and God. It's not what happens, but how I react to what happens. I began to face and deal rather than whine and eat. 
I fix most of my problems by changing myself, not others. Guardedness, hiding out, phoniness was a big problem. I began trying to be authentic. I tried to take down the wall, let people in, let them know how I really thought and felt. I practiced making myself a little vulnerable. I practiced being who I was rather than being what I thought would get me strokes or keep me out of conflict. Selfishness. I began to let go of selfishness. There was a gradual paradigm shift from how do I get what I want to how can I be useful. Later, of course, this became even more pronounced with the 11-step prayer that admonishes me to seek seek to comfort, understand, and love rather than to be comforted, understood, and loved. And then, of course, into the 12-step principle of passing it on. Fear. Um, Fear generally and fear of failure was, was a big part of it. Fear general, I began acting as if I had faith that God would give me whatever I needed to deal with whatever life brought. I sought to cultivate people, places, and things that nurtured my soul. I tried to open my atheist, agnostic mind to whatever this thing was that was helping me do things I thought I could not do. Fear of failure was big for me. I decided I would try to practice courage, doing it anyway, just doing it, since they told me new habits and new skills were learned by practice, practice, practice. So for a long time, my courage was simply white-knuckle courage. Courage is not the absence of fear, as we've all heard. It's doing it anyway. Lots of times it was take a deep breath, say, here we go, God, and wade into whatever the situation was. Excessive concern about what others think of me. I practice remembering that my worth is based upon what I think of me, not what I think others think of me. I practice feeling that God loves me unconditionally doing things in my life that allowed me to respect myself, accepting that disagreement does not equal personal rejection. Disagreement does not equal personal rejection. turns out to be really important in intergroup. Perfectionism. I started telling myself that I was not a mistake because I made a mistake, believing that because I am human, I cannot do everything perfectly, that I will make mistakes, that I will do some things well, some things okay, and some things not so well at all. And procrastination, practicing action, 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 focus, focus, focus. They told me recovery was simply the byproduct of accumulated actions. Keep moving no matter what. So I began to put discipline and structure into my life, which totally changed my life. It started with the eating, but now extended into everything. Anger and resentment, lastly, I began to practice truly accepting reality, accepting others, accepting what is and what has been. Life is insecure and often unjust, and that's just the way it is. Deal with it. I'll never have peace of mind until I accept the world as it is, they told me. Imperfect and always changing. Resentment, uh, I was able to forgive most people as I passed through the door of forgiving myself in step five. Notice I said most. Here in step six, I looked at the tough ones that hadn't dissolved. I realized that holding on to resentment only hurt me, not the other person, like drinking poison and expecting them to die. So I focused on live and let live and let go and let God, and I began saying the two resentment prayers every day, every day, every day at that time. So now it's many years later. Uh, As it notes in the 12 and 12 on page 65, this is a lifetime job. Quote, we cannot expect, it says, all our character defects to be lifted out of us 
as the drive to drink was. A few of them may be, but with most of them, we shall have to be content with patient improvement. Patient improvement, that's my story. I continue to work on 6 and 7 every day, every day now, 32 years later after I first did that. And with that, with that I'll pass on to number 7. Thank you, Don. Step 7, Phil D., New York City. Hello, everybody. My name is Phil. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I'm here to talk about step seven. All right. Let's see. All right. Step seven. Humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Yeah. In the, in the 12 and 12, it says, uh, AA, it says uh, that it's important to consider what humility is and what the practice of it can mean to me. In order to be able to do this, I have to be humble. And I, I really have to think about what was humility, what, what's humbleness? And uh, it says here, uh, for, for me and the research I've done, it's humility is this kind of virtue. You know, I have to come to this conclusion that I am not better or worse than anyone else. But, but wait a second, I, I, I haven't even given my stats yet. Goodness sakes, I'm so nervous here. Um, let's see, Phil, compulsive overeater. Uh, my home group is the There is a Solution meeting of New York City. Um, if you guys ever get a chance to check it out, uh, the website is www.oabigbooknyc.org. We, have, uh, we do a big book thing over there. You could listen to uh, free downloads from big book speakers. Um, in any case, glad to be here. Um, I have uh, my maximum weight. I was 313 pounds. I've currently lost about 140-ish pounds. And uh, just huh, have to learn more about humility. Um, the reason it's so funny that I ended up speaking on, on this uh, because I was having a problem with six and seven. I kept on finding out that despite doing the work and going through the steps and taking other people through the steps, um, I started noticing that a lot of my other character defects were, were coming out and reaching out and smacking me on the nose. And um, I noticed I was acting out this way and acting out that way, not acting out with the food anymore, with the alcohol anymore, or any of the other main things that were killing me, but other things, you know, trying to control people, trying to do these other things. And I'm like, I got problems with this. My sponsor said, you have a problem with six and seven. And I'm like, oh, six and seven. So that's when I had to start doing the, the research about the humility. You know, I learned that through doing the humility thing, I have to learn, like I said before, I'm not bitter or worse than anybody else. And, and I have to get this right relationship with myself and my right relationship with my higher power. And then I could move that out to others. You know, and what I found is that I could either ask for it, you know, I could ask, meaning pray, I could pray for humility, or I could get totally beat down by my character defects until I'm like, stop hitting me, I'm done, seriously, and because that's what I'm noticing. I'm writing out 10 steps every night, and I'm like, I'm mad at this person for not doing my will, I'm mad at that person because, you know, I want this, and I want that, and, and my sponsor's just like, you poor thing. I mean, he's not saying that, but, you know, he just said, you might want to look at this. So, I know that I'm powerless, and, and luckily for me, I was able to say, all right, all right, I'm powerless over this, what do I got to do? I got to be totally willing to get, get rid of these things. So, um, I talked to a friend of mine, actually, you know, you could do, what you, you could do your six and seven with your uh, sponsor, again, like I've been through the steps three times, but then I just said, I was talking to a friend of mine, trusted friend, Scott, um, a closed mouth friend, and uh, he says, all right, well, let's, let's look at this, so, you know, started doing a list of my, my character defects and my character assets, because it's important to know that I have assets, too, I'm not a, a bad person, I'm just a sick person, so I got my defects, writing them all down, jotting them all down, and um, once I, I take that 
uh, written inventory, looking at that, both good and bad, and then uh, I'm able to assume, uh, uh, talk, talk them over with a friend or a sponsor. If you want to go through it, look at it, and I'm writing down different things, um, talking about, like, all right, say, for example, um, I'm conceited or, you know, I'm lazy, I'm controlling, I'm neglecting myself. I'm looking at all these different things that I've been doing lately, other things that cropped up, and I want them to be removed. I want them to be removed right now. And also, I have this kind of strange impression that, you know what, I can do it on my own. I can do it. I'm doing it. I'm just going to not do this anymore. I'm going to stop being lazy. I'm going to stop doing these things. And that's not kind of how the way it works. What I have to do is... I have to ask my higher power to remove it. My higher power is going to remove it on his time, not my time. Because I want it out there and I want it out now because I want to be a perfect person. Incorrect. I'm not doing it to be a perfect person. I'm doing it to be a better service to other people. Because my primary purpose is to stay abstinent on a daily basis and help another sick and suffering individual. And I'm not going to be able to do that if I'm running around with my hair on fire. It's ridiculous. All right. So, relax. I chill. Um, I have to accept myself. I have to forgive myself, love myself. And, you know, I ask God to, you know, God, please forgive me for these things. He's not going to render me as white as snow on these things. But you know what? There's work that I got to do. There's work I got to do. So I'm sitting there with my friend, you know. I'm assuming a physical posture of uh, humility and uh, what you call it, which means like a praying stance. I'm praying here. I'm getting on my knees here. And I'm asking my higher power to please remove this so that I can be a better service. That is, that's a good thing. That's a thing that I really need here. And um, I, I, you know, look at those things. And, and he always says, you, you, you cross it out with a pencil. You know, you say, all right, so I, at the top of the list is lying, right? So then I cross that out. Um, and I'm like, he's, I'm like, he says, you know why we're doing it with a pencil? I'm like, why? Because it's going to come back. And, uh, you know, so I also, so I could see it because it's there, and it's going to come back, and, you know, so I have to ask for it to be removed again. There's, this is like one of these lists that I'm not going to be throwing this list away. I'm going to be keeping this list because I'm going to have to refer back to it and see what character defects are coming back because I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to pray about this and ask my higher power, please, humbly, remove this defective character on your time, not my time. You know, help me be of service to other people, and I go through each one. Please help me remove my line, you know, Please help me remove this lust. Take this away from me so that I can be of better service to you and my fellows. You know, please help me from being fearful. You know, please help me from being mistrustful. All these different things that go through all, please help me from procrastinating. All these different things over and over again, going through the list, crossing them out, crossing them out, crossing them out. And then after that, it was a really, a really good thing is like, I get to go through the asset part of my, of my, my list, which I also put down a lot of good things about me. And also, dreams and aspirations and things that I also want to do for myself or with myself or things that will help me be of service. You know, the main point is the, the, the defects were keeping me from God. And, and now the assets are the things that are bringing me closer to God. You know, so I wrote things like learn yoga or, or you know, different things. And even, you know, just to see these things. And he says, when you refer back to that list, you might see character defects that are coming back, but also you might want to list down some more, more assets. You take a good look at yourself and you see, you know, I'm not a bad person. I'm a sick person. I have these things and they're going to come back over and over again. And also new things are going to, I'm going to get these things. And then, you know what? When I notice that these things are missing because it happens on God time, when these defects are no longer here, 
or on a daily basis, then I get to thank God from the, the bottom of my heart and be like, you know, thank you, you know, be appreciative. Don't be like all paranoid, like, oh, my God, this thing, you know, I'm like the hole in the hole in the donut. I, I'm missing this character defect because these character defects used to work for me. You know, these character defects kept me safe as a kid. These character defects kept me, like, you know, protected because I didn't have a solution back then. Right now, I have a spiritual solution, which is a trust and a power greater than myself. A lot of the things that my sponsor was originally pointing out to me, the problem is even with uh, five years abstinent, I'm, I, I, I'm still having problems trusting God. You know, God is keeping me from compulsively overeating and relieving that obsession or relieving the alcohol obsession or drug obsession or whatever obsession. But, you know, I feel that these other little minor things, maybe it's too too small a problem for my higher power. My higher power is a big higher power. He could hold it down. He's going to remove it. You know, doing this stuff, you know, it's 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 going to help me, you know, build this trust with God, with my higher power. And from building that trust, not living in fear, understanding that my higher power is living within myself. And for me, God is love. So this love lives within me. So I have to love myself more and I have to be patient. This is happening on God's time. There's no way to do this. You know, I can't do this on my own. I don't got this. So the main point is, these character defects are going to return. I'm going to get depressed. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm, it's, it's, it's going to pass. It's going to pass. The main point is all I have to do is just the right thing today. You know, I'm, my higher power is going to remove these things. But you know what? I've got to take some actions too. I've got to turn my back on these bad behaviors. I'm not going to procrastinate today. I want to turn, turn my scars into stars, turn these, these, these defects into, you know, I might be obsessive about certain things, but maybe I could turn my OCD-ness and turn that to, like focusness about my recovery, working with others, doing these things. And so if I keep on doing these things on a daily basis, you know, it's going to be okay. I'm just trust that my higher power has got this. Humbly ask, humbly ask. When I ask, I'm praying for my higher power to remove this on a daily basis. I have to trust this thing. I have to know this thing and have acceptance. With God's help, I can change, you know, I'm doing the work that I can, do the things that I must, forgive myself, love myself, and, you know, just be there, represent. And from doing these things, I'm going to be okay. And with that, I will pass. Thank you, guys. Enough said. Thank you, Phil. Step eight, Lauren S. from Pennsylvania. Hi. I am Lauren S., as in Sam, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I am so jazzed about being able to share with you all fellows my step eight. I just need to reel it in. Okay, so step eight. (sighs) Made a list of those people we have harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. For me, right now we're on step eight. We're doing the actions. We're finally in the battle to become God's instrument. We're clearing away our channel. And I really experience the miracle that took place when I finished the third step prayer 
put the seventh step prayer in my eight and nine. Now, eight is a preparation step. It's lumped with step nine in the book. But my recovered step guide ensured me that I had to have a thorough, complete step eight before I could go on with my step nine. So when I had my eighth step done, my cards, my letters, I could then go into meditation with God, show me who should I make an amends to. And I brought my cards with me wherever I went while I was ready. Okay. So the first thing I did for step eight was I met with my sponsor. It was it was like a day or two after I did my seven-step prayer. And I made a list. I took into meditation, who do I own amends to? And, you know, really the book doesn't warn us that when we're writing our resentment inventories, most of the people that are on our fourth step are going to go into our amends. So that can, that was just a little quirk of the big book that I'm grateful. The steps came as they were, and I was willing to make amends to those people. I was genuinely sorry for how I treated God's kids. I mean, when you can tell when someone does a fourth step because it changes you. It, it changes you in your heart. And you genuinely don't want to treat God's kids like you were the past 20 to 80 years whenever you came into starting this process. And then I, took, I made a meditation list of who I thought I, made, I owed an amends to. And my first list was about, gosh, it was uh, maybe 130 people. And I did it for three days. And then on the fourth day, I met with my step guide, recovered step guide. And she helped me make my cards. And the cards are very succinct. And then I had to whittle down those 130 to about 80 because, oh, my gosh, yeah, about 50 of those weren't appropriate amends. They they were just names I tacked on because I thought I had to make an amends to every person I ever came in contact with. I mean, if you live the kind of life I did based on self-will, oh, gosh, I made, I owed an amends to every person, the bus driver, the the cashier, every cousin, every friend, every person I ever lived with. But to be honest, yeah. Most of those weren't appropriate. And she helped me see that, oh, gosh, this is, I'm bringing people into my life. It has to be, this has to be a thorough and appropriate method. I mean, some of these people I hadn't seen in like 15 years. So she, very carefully, we went through the list and I made the cards and, uh, I'm going to read some of these cards that I wrote for some of these members. These are two cards that I recently made that came up in meditation. 
One of them is a financial amends. And this is Uncle Lou and Aunt Beth. I was not a good niece to you. I did not visit with you like I should have. I was not there for you. I stole food from you. In the in January of 2008, I took about $15 worth of food from you that I should not have. Can I give this back to you? And another card that I wrote recently was for my parents, and um, I already made a formal amends to them. So this one's going to be more in the form of a conversation. Like, Mom and Dad, I just felt like these past few months I was not a good daughter to you. I was not available. I took advantage of your home, your money, your generosity. I put my needs over spending time with you. And, you know, how does this make you feel? Like, is there anything I left out? These are two cards that I made. This I'm going to read this one card for my roommate, and I consider this my recovered date after I made this formal amends. And this was... Um, September 29th, 2013. This this was when we really get into the wheelbarrow with God. Um, I wasn't a good friend or a good roommate to you. I didn't ask how you were. I wasn't available to you. I isolated and put my disease before you. I was I wasn't honest with you. I stole money from you. I lied about your half of the gas and electric bill in September, October, and November of 2012 and I took food and toiletries from you. I've added up the total costs, and I believe I owe you $110. I'm willing to pay you a minimum of $10 a month until the debts are paid to you. And then I handed her um, a $20 bill and three bills, the three gas electric bills from September, October, and November. And then I said, I, I have to earn back your trust. I want to be honest with you. I will post the bills on the fridge. I will not take your food and your toiletries. And on my card, I have a list, you know, paying back the money. In September, October, November, December, and January, I listed, I paid her $20 to stay, $20 to stay, 20 20 and then 30 And gosh, and then finally, the last one I want to read to you, is uh, the one that I wrote to my dog, Bianca, and I went to her grave site and I brought a picture of her. And it was, Dear Bianca, I was bawling my eyes out. I wasn't a good caregiver and friend to you. I put my food and hobbies over your needs. I didn't treat you kindly. I wasn't there when you were tired, playful, unclean, hungry, or had to go outside, and I didn't say nice things to you. And, oh, guys, finally, I just want to also share with you, when I approached these fellows with making the amends, my, my step guide had me write a note card to read, whether I was approaching the amends on the phone or writing a letter. I also have examples of letters, but I don't think I'll have time to read those. And my contact card was, and now when I'm doing my 10th step, this, I don't read a card. I just 
feel whatever the spirit moves me. But I didn't have a very clear channel when I started this immense process. So I recommend you do have a written script if it can be of help to you because it helped me. So when I call or contact, ask if amends can be made. Gosh, dear Sam, I am in a program of recovery from compulsive overeating, and part of my program is to make amends for the harms that I've caused others. While reviewing my behavior, it has become clear to me that I owe you an amends for the harms that I've caused. I was wondering if you'd be willing to meet with me face-to-face so I can make this amends to you. I wait for the response. Then I said, great, I'm free you know, Saturday at noon and Wednesday at 6. Whatever works best for you, I will be there. The meeting should only take about 20 minutes. Whatever you decide, thank you for being a part of my recovery. And then to wrap it up, thank, oh, thanks for being patient. I'm actually over my time. While making the amends, this is the format that I use. And this was what I have written when I was definitely still pretty blocked. As you know, I'm in a program of recovery for my compulsive overeating, and I'm here to make amends for the harms I've caused you in my past. I've written down everything on this note card because I wanted to make sure I said everything I came here to say today. These are the harms I'm aware of. You know, I was not a good niece to you, da da da. And then, is there anything else that you would like to talk about? Are there any harms I may have left out? Or would you like to tell me how my behavior made you feel? I let them talk. Whatever they say, I just listen. And then I say, I understand. Thank you. Is there anything I can do to right the wrongs that have harmed you? They talk. And then I uh, confirm whether whether I can or cannot fulfill their requests. I always thank them for being a part of my recovery and for meeting with me today. Thank you so much. With that, I will pass. Thank you, Lauren S. Step nine. Ruth M., Illinois. Hi, this is Ruth. Can you hear me? Yes, good morning. Okay, good. Um, So I'm going to do step nine. May direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So um, I want to say that when I got to step nine, I did not want to make amends to, to my mother, so I made no amends at first. Now, that's not the way to work the program, that I was at. So just a little bit of background. I, um, with my mom, when I did my fourth step, and somebody heard my fifth step, and I got to the part about my mom, because it was huge resentment. In fact, it was just rage. It was hatred. It wasn't just a little bitty hard feeling. And um, she said to me, well, she, your mom rules you from the grave, doesn't she? And it just struck deep in my heart because my mom was dead, and yet I was carrying around all this rage to her. Um, my mom was not mother material. Um, she was paranoid schizophrenic. She was very violent. Um, I lived in absolute terror of her, um, especially when she would go, what we today, we used to call it go crazy. It just meant she was psychotic, and she didn't even know who she was, and she would try to kill me. So I had terror, and I blamed everything in my life on my mom. But anyway, I, I knew that I could not be at peace unless I resolved my resistance towards my mom. And that's what I learned from the comment the person had made to me. So when I got to step nine, I knew I had to do it, but I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go there. Um, I didn't want to give up all that I had lived on as long as I could remember 
I, that would mean I would be something different. And somehow I didn't want to let it go, but I had to let it go because I wouldn't be at peace. So I prayed to God, and I said, well, God, how am I going to make amends to my mom? I mean, my mom is dead, so I, I don't know what to do. And, of course, immediately came to my mind when I made the prayer, because that was the beginning of being ready to make the amends, was I had remembered um, something I'd heard like two or three months earlier, and a person was talking about having this great resentment towards her parent. I, can't remember, I couldn't remember if it was mother or father, but didn't know what to do, and I prayed to God, and it came to that person's mind to write a letter and go to the graveyard and read it over the tombstone. So when I prayed, what should I do, it immediately came into me, and I knew that's what I had to do. So, okay, so I'm going to make the amends. So I, I uh, sat down and, and I wrote the letter. And what I could write, the, le the highest level I could write at that point was, I was sorry that my rage towards her never allowed me, at the very end of her life, to let her know about the 12th step. For I had made a commitment that I would do what I needed to do to be what God wanted, which was included in carrying the message to others. And I had not carried the message to her. So my promise to God, had, I had failed my promise to God. And so I regretted that I had not given her the information. She could have done what she wanted with it, but I was not willing. So there's how I sorted it out. I could go and say that to her. I forgive her, but I was willing to say how I had failed my commitment to God and to the program as it meant everything to me. So I sat down and I wrote this letter. And then I looked at it and pulled out a map. Because when, when I was 12, my mom had ran away with a guy. In addition to all the other stuff, she was also having all kinds of affairs. Finally ran off with one guy. Thank God it was one of the high points of my life because then I didn't have to get beaten. Um, we were all relieved, my siblings and I. Um, but anyway, so I found out where it was. It was about a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour journey from where I lived. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go. And it was uh, one of those last hurrahs in winter where there was the, you know, the little flakes of snow, um, cold. It was cold. And so I, I drove into the town, and nobody was out because it was cold, except there was this one man walking down the street. I don't know if it was an angel or an actual person, but uh, anyway, I rolled down my window, and I said, can you, can you tell me where the, you know, the graveyard is? Because it was a small town. And he said, oh, yes, and he gave me directions, and I thanked him. And then I went and I drove to the graveyard. And um, I drove in the graveyard, and then it suddenly hit me. There was nobody in this graveyard. Nobody was out. It was cold. There were snowflakes in the air. And I, um, so I drove around in the car just looking. Um, of course, I did not see a tombstone standing up that I could see from the car. My mother, in addition to many of her other faults, she was a cult spender. She had no money. So there was no way there was going to be a big tombstone. I already knew that. So I parked the car. I turned it off. And then I began to tell God out. I mean, what in the hell are you thinking? You had me drive up here three, three and a half hours. Can you not organize things a little better than this? I mean, look, there is nobody out here. I have nobody to ask. My ass is going to freeze off into a gigantic icicle before I find that tombstone. Have you not you just have blown your job, okay? I've been trying to get a connection with you, but now you have screwed it up royally. I have made this trip. I have reluctantly, but I am here to make my amends. I'm leaving out the cuss word. But anyway, I told God off. I thought God had screwed it up. 
But at that point, oh, the thought enters my mind. I guess I'll go towards the place that's the young, the you know, the youngest part of the graveyard. I mean, she hasn't been dead that many years. I'll kind of go over in that direction because she had been dead about three years by the time I was there. So I can, okay, fine, fine. I'm still, I'm still a man of God. So I walk and I walk and walk. All of a sudden, I don't know why, but I stop and I look down and I walk directly to her tombstone. It was right there at my feet. At that point, I had to make a first amends before I could make amends to my mom. I had to make amends to God. I'm sorry, that was really mean. I was really inconsiderate. I mean, what was I thinking? I call, called you, you know, names and and you took care of it. And you know, I'm sorry. I, I, I had to make this big apology to God. Um, but anyway, at that point, obviously, I knew I was supposed to make my amends. So I, I, t- I took the paper out, and uh, I read it over the tombstone, and I, I made an apology. And in doing so, I, I knew in my mind that uh, things were different, you know, that I had, I, had, I had done, I was not, I could not falter for everything. I had made a mistake. I hadn't carried out my commitment to God, so obviously I was wrong for that. And I was sorry. Uh, that I had done something wrong to my mother. That was something I'd never, ever considered in my mind. It was already a great amend. At that point, I turned around, and I began to walk back to the car, and then I stopped. Again, I didn't do that any more than I found the, the, tomb, the tombstone. I stopped. Something stopped me. And without me even, it was like a surreal moment. I, I stopped, and I walked back to the tombstone, but I, I wasn't doing it. I literally was being moved back to the tombstone. And I came back and I looked down at the tombstone. Again, I was being moved to look down at the tombstone. And as I looked down at the tombstone, without any thought on my part, I opened my mouth and didn't know what was... I, I just opened my mouth and the words came out, and I love you, Mom. And I meant it. I didn't know though my hatred was the love of my mother. You know, it was her egg and it was my dad's sperm that got me together. And it brought me to planet Earth. And I really did love her. And as I said those words that I did not know were in there, that did not come from me, obviously God brought them through me, I felt this huge bolter, a physical bolter, left leaving my body. I, I, I felt my mind, it was leaving my mind, and my spirit, which had had this huge bolter that blocked me from God, the hatred of my mother, was gone. It, it happened in a second, as I said those words, that I didn't know to say. And everything... I- my life would have been based in this absolute terror of my mother and hatred of her was gone. So what I had been was gone and what was going to take its place was going to be something different. And so what I had no idea was going to happen, I could never have orchestrated that. I could never have thought that because I never had any awareness that love was below the hatred. So that's what happened when I did that first amend. So being a tad compulsive, the next weekend I went out and did 16 of them. Because I was a little compulsive, yes, obviously. So, and just a quick story on that is I started beginning of the day, and I was going, all my siblings, for, I mean, it was everybody, all the biggies. I mean, I, I could do that one. I could do, I, could, I had to do them all. And my one sister, she wasn't home, and I had gotten through everybody, and now I was going to come back the very last one that evening to get to her. Well, I never said I was sorry to anybody about anything in my whole life. So the, the line, the line was busy. Everybody was calling everybody. Has Ruth showed up at your place? Do you know what she's saying? So they all had, were talking among themselves, wondering what in the hell had happened to Ruth, because this was not Ruth, and it was not, because I was a bulldozer uh, when I went through life, because I, 
tried to vow not to be like my mother. I ended up being like my mother. So I got to my sister's house, and I came in, and I said the amends, and she looked at me with a very, very, this look on her face. I said, what, what is it? She said, um, um, are you going to try to kill your, are you trying to kill yourself? I said, no, why do you say that? She said, well, in all my soap operas, this is what they do before they kill themselves. I said, no, this is the sanest thing I've ever done. So now I get a big laugh over that. But uh, it was a radical change of me. That which was who I was had to be something different, and I had to let go of feelings towards people so that I could be free and let God come through me. Um, the step is a huge step, and it radically changed me, as all the steps do. So with that, I'm going to pass to the next person. Thank you, Ruth. Step 10, Penny C. from Massachusetts. Good morning, everybody, and thank you, Leah. I am Penny C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Massachusetts, and um, I am just so, so thrilled to be part of this anniversary meeting. Uh, I distinctly, distinctly remember the day I came home from having been my one of my one of my loves in the summertime is is picking blueberries and I stood there in the blueberry patch, tears rolling down my eyes because I had been so devastated about what was happening at one of my meetings that I considered a home meeting and 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 i I just I felt like my my o a world was falling apart. And that very day I came home and there was a message on my machine that a new meeting was starting and it turned out to be a vision for you. And so July 18th, 2012, I was front row and center, couldn't wait to hear what was going to happen. And I have to say, um, I was asked which step most transformed my life. And boy, uh, I can say that um, not only the step, step 10, but a vision for you. After being at that point in OA, working the steps to the best of my ability for 25 years, there was still more to come. And I, I remember that, that day talking to another recovered person who was on the meeting and saying, my trust in God has taken a giant leap. And, and so... I never forget that. So I, I thank everybody who's been part of starting the meeting, keeping it going, everybody who listens. Uh, when I first came on, there were 260 people on a Sunday morning, and that's incredible. So step 10. Well, I'm going to read from just the first paragraph from Bill W.'s essay on step 10 in the 12 and 12. He says, as we work the first nine steps, we prepare ourselves for the adventure of a new life. But when we approach step 10, we commence to put our AA way of life to practical use, day by day, in fair weather or foul. Then comes the acid test. Can we stay sober, keep an emotional balance, and live to good purpose under all these conditions? And it's it's so so important that I I take step ten for very very seriously, and that I live now in step ten, eleven, and twelve. Step ten gives me the opportunity 
to, at any given moment, day or night, I might wake up in the middle of the night and realize that there's a resentment that uh, may have just may have come in a dream for that matter. And I have the clear cut directions as to what to do about that so that I can stay in in good connection with my higher power and I can continue to live happy, joyous and free. So the directions, and this is what I'm finding day by day as I study in the big book and I listen to other people and I participate by not only calling other people on the spiritual network, which I've, de- I've developed. And that's a suggestion that uh, is made and I make it now that it's very important that I have a network of recovered people that, whom I can call when I have a step 10, when I have a resentment and people who will call me. And every time someone calls me and I'm able to go through the step 10 with them, I realize this is them helping me to stay in recovery and I appreciate that. So step 10 in the big book, the the directions, they become more clear every single day. Every single time I, I go through this process, it says we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes. So you've already done the bulk of the work in the first nine steps. And now we're living, we're living that life. So we vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. So there's still more work to do. The big book tells us more will be revealed. And as it's revealed, then I take care of it. It says we have entered the world of the spirit. So we've got a spiritual connection with the higher power. Then our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. And and it reminds me that this doesn't happen overnight. It's got to continue for a lifetime. Oh, my gosh, a whole lifetime. It means that day by day, I cannot let up on this this recovery. I cannot let my spiritual life become just a theory again. It says, so continue to watch for what? What we did in step four, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, fear, and when they crop up, we ask God to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make, quick, make amends quickly if we harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our, resolutely turned our thoughts to someone we can help. Then, it, you know, it goes into these, what I've heard as the 10th step promises. After we've done all the nine steps and we are truly living in step 10, 11, and 12, it promises us after step 10 that, you know, we're going to stop fighting anything, even food, even food. So when people say to me, Penny, when did it happen that you no longer wanted, wanted the food, that you no longer obsessed about it? I don't have a date or a time. I can tell you the day in... It was uh, June 10th, 1987, that I was, I was brought to the rooms where the miracle occurred that very day when I heard the word disease, and I knew, I knew that God and I together could, could deal with the disease. But when did it happen that I no longer even thought about it, nor did I want 
it's not, it wasn't about just stopping, which all the diets had helped me do, but it was staying stopping, staying stopped without obsessing about it, without what do they say, white knuckling it. So I have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even food. And, and, and I do, I am living a life of sane and happy usefulness right now. I thought it might help, and I'll, I'll just end with this, to talk about an example of what, what happened to me and the new enlightenment, which happens every day, every day. But especially, I'm going to just suggest that anyone who wants to know more about the Step 10 process, and if you haven't already listened to the special edition, October 27th, 2013, it, is, it was just uh, incredible to me because it, cha- it, it just cleared up the, the process, the directions, and, and you'll see that it's Step 10 and a woman named Louisa who talks about it on that date. And shortly after that, I realized, after listening to that meeting, I realized that I had a resentment, a deep resentment, but I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't aware how deep it was until I really pondered it. And that was toward a former son-in-law. And why? Why? Because, and this may sound funny, he unfriended me on Facebook. He, imagine, and I was, how dare he do that? And I sent him a little email and asked, why did you do that? And he didn't respond. And so I called a recovered compulsive overeater, realizing that this was, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was obsessing about it. It, 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 it had a hold on me. And the com- recovered compulsive overeater simply followed the directions that are on this page. It said, it, it, he said to me, you know, okay, who's resentment toward? And I told him and he said why and I said he he unfriended me on Facebook and and his response was so whose Facebook page is that yours or his and I had to say well it's his and he said so he's not following your script and that's really what it's all about all resentments are when I come right down to it that people don't follow my script whether justified or unjustified, a resentment is going to kill me. The big book tells me that. So we went through, where was I selfish? What did I want for myself? I wanted to, to be the, you know, liked by everybody, including him. And I, want, I wanted to be friends with everybody, even on Facebook. And where was I, where was I self-seeking? Well, I, I was, I did did email him to say why I did tell a couple of other people and, um, and and wanting to get my way. Where was I dishonest? Well, I guess there wasn't much dishonesty there, except I was being dishonest with myself, telling myself that he had no right. He had no right to unfriend me. Of course he did. And then we came to where was I afraid? And the fear, the fear was, well, you know, he's the father of my my grandchildren. And if he doesn't like me, is he going to do something to, you know, curtail my time with my grandchildren, which which is 
the light of my life. And and so, you know, did I have no an apology? No, thank goodness. I really I really hadn't said anything or done anything that was detrimental that I needed to apologize for. Even the people I told it was a mat just matter of factly. And so then resolutely turn my attention to helping someone else. And immediately I just I have a list keep a list of newcomers that call on in on the vision for you every morning. And at random, I picked a newcomer, called, and we had a lovely conversation. I didn't have to tell anything about any of my difficulties. And, and that resentment that I lived with for a number of days disappeared. And, and it's, it's just miraculous that we have this 10th step that we can call upon at any given time. And the only other thing I wanted to say is it talks about, you know, the spiritual life is not a theory. So when I'm in step 10, 11, and 12, I continue to improve my conscious contact with God. That's getting into step 11, I realize. But in step 10, I thank God. I thank God when I say, what could I have done differently? Trust and rely upon my higher power. God is bigger than anything, and it doesn't matter. There's no resentment God hasn't heard about. There's no anger that God can't take away. And by the way, I, I omitted that during the process of doing step 10. Yes, we came to the part where I was made myself ready and willing to have God remove that defect. And then ask God to remove it. And this recovered person said, now we trust, we trust that God will remove it if we ask. And, and, it's, and it happened. And so I don't know, I, I, I'm sorry, I wasn't watching my time. I think I'm within my time. And I so appreciate everybody being here. And happy anniversary. And thank you to, again, everybody who has made and continue to make this, make this meeting just the the highlight of my day every morning, and I'll pass. Thank you, Penny C. Step 11, Sharon S., Minnesota. Good morning. Thank you, Leah, and thank you to all who are on the line. This is Sharon R.S., and I am a gracefully recovered compulsive overeater. Step 11, uh, just a little bit of background about me. I came to this 12-step uh, program as a, a user of food. I used food um, to the point that I fell into disease and sickness. I literally was dying. I ended up with kidney failure, asthma, and 50 pounds of excess weight. 14 of those pounds were water weight. My cholesterol when I came into this current recovery was 311. And although I'm a person, I have actual physical allergies to certain foods, and those allergies would cause me to have asthma attacks and arthritic-like symptoms. But in spite of that, my addiction compelled me to eat those things. And I would end up in the emergency room many times uh, just to go back once again and eat those very same things. I um, 
would convince myself that one bite wouldn't hurt. Uh, and I got to the point where I could barely take care of myself, much less my family. But within weeks of starting this current recovery, uh, my kidneys had begun to recover. My cholesterol had returned to normal. I had lost all of the water weight. So this recovery is very important to me. I feel I am truly out of options without uh, doing this program. And But I had to face the destruction of self-centeredness, according to page 14. It tells that in us that in order to keep this recovery, I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over us all, in all things. So step 11 is where I learned how to stay connected to this power that's so important and so critical to keep me alive. It reads in step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Of all of the steps, uh, step 11 has been the most uh, intimidating for me. It's been the most difficult and the most challenging. Um, uh, but it has been the most impactful. When I look at step three, I, I see it in three parts. The seeking uh, being one part, and then part two, the praying and the meditating, and then the part three is the um, action, the, the uh, stepping out and the, the, the um, carrying out of God's will. So in the, the first part, the seeking, seeking of conscious contact with God, when I was in the food, I lived in illusion, delusion, and obsession. So when I come into the recovery, I have the habit, I'm in the habit of checking out of the present. I'm in the habit of, of, of just clicking out, just checking out. And, but what I'm taught is that I need the conscious contact with God and through the conscious contact with God that replaces that need for living in illusion and deluding myself and then slipping into obsession once again. So the conscious contact helps me to stay connected and stay present in the world and in my day-to-day -day life. When I look at part two of step 11, as uh, I see it as we're praying for God's will in my, I'm praying for God's will in my life. This implies that I want God's will, <laughs> that I want God's will in my life. And, but um, I had to accept that my way didn't work, it doesn't work, and that I need a better way. And for me, my addiction was a powerful motivator uh, for it to stay, to, to want God's will. And my fellows were a demonstration that if I did what they did, I would get the recovery that they got. And what they told me to do was that I need to improve my conscious contact with God and that I need to pray for God's will for me in my life. And, and then I had to then uh, go and actually seek that power to carry out that will. So it wasn't enough to have it in my uh, to in my illusion, in my thinking, I had to actually begin to act it out in, in the real world. The third part of this step, and the most challenging, has been the carrying out of God's will. 
as I said, you know, taking that out into the world, actually doing. I mean, it's it's one thing for me to stay in my room, to pray and meditate, all wonderful and glorious, to imagine a great and beautiful place, but to go out day to day without uh getting full of all the resentments and the things that we talked about earlier and having to go through that process in ad nauseum, as they call it, over and over again, which is what I did early in my recovery is I had to go through one fourth step after another because whenever I encountered another human being, I would go right back into resentment, uh, selfishness, self um, uh, dishonesty, and fear. So I had to get to the point where I wasn't going through that process over and over again and staying in the constant loop of one through 10 or one through nine. And step 11 has been instrumental in helping me to do that because it's given me another way. It's given me that connection with, with the power source that helps me to stay in the moment and not slip back into fear and self-seeking and selfishness. And then having to lie and be dishonest and deceptive and then falling again into illusion and delusion and and uh, falling back once again into obsession. But what I learned is that I have spent years, I spent years in um, uh, doing prayer meditation and, and these daily activities, but I didn't know how to take it out and into the world and one of the things that i learned in recovery is a, is to do little things like looking at my breathing and i learned to breathe in and as i breathe in i i began to do this little routine where i say welcome and i welcome god into my moment welcome and then i breathe out and i say thank you so welcome into my life. And I found that was difficult at first because I really didn't want God and I really want to do it my way. But I can't. I no longer, that just doesn't work anymore. It just leads me into a disease once again. And so breathing in and welcoming God into my life and, and making a decision with my mind and my heart and saying regardless of how uncomfortable it is to do and to follow God's will for me, it is a decision that I accept on a daily and a moment-by-moment -moment basis. I can tell simply by my breathing if I'm trusting myself or trusting God. If I'm breathing freely, deeply, and easily, I know I'm in the moment and I'm in God. When I'm holding my breath and tightening my shoulders and my body's in tension, I'm not trusting. I'm all in self. So that simple practice for me of saying, welcome, Welcome, higher power. Welcome, my dear God, into my life. I am here to do your will. Show me your will. Your will is what I want to do. And that has just been instrumental in my life. And step 11 has, step 11 has allowed me to go into life. It has allowed me to reclaim my life. Step 11 shows me how to live as a recovered person. Um, working step 11 has given this undisciplined, self-centered, nebulous person, myself, a structure, a centering place. It helps me to be less afraid in my day-to-day -day life. It helps me to move from people-pleasing to knowing who I am and wanting to please my higher power and to determine her will for me 
and then to ask for the power to carry that out. I am still growing in step 11. I'm still growing in knowing who I am and who God is in my life. I'm still growing in accepting God's role for me in the moment-by-moment times of my life. Staying in step 11 keeps me out of myself. It keeps me out of people-pleasing. It keeps me authentic and real. And it keeps me out of fear so that I can be present with life. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sharon R.S. And now, step 12, Lori C., Winnipeg, Canada. Uh, Good morning. Can I be heard? Yes. Okay. Well, thank you. Lori, uh, my name is Lori. I'm a compulsive reader. Uh, I've been in the program for quite some time. I've been absent uh, uh, since approximately um, May 1st, 1993, about 21 years. Um, it's It's been a wonderful series of sharing, and I'm, I'm very honored to be able to uh, uh, share with uh, Vision for You on its anniversary. If my problem is that once I start, I can't stop because of the physical cravings that my body uh, overpowers me with, and that I can't stop from starting again because of the mental problem I have of remembering that I can't start. I shouldn't start because once I start, I can't stop. Then clearly the solution is that I have to keep remembering. I have to find a way by which I can remember on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute, second-to-second basis that I just can't have this stuff. I just can't eat it. That it is poison for me, even though other people may eat it with impunity um, and or indulge in the eating behavior with impunity. And the 12 steps solve, have solved that problem for me and have solved it for millions of other people because they clear my mind. They get rid of all the crap that's gone on in the past and they allow me to live in the present without as much concern for the future as I used to have. Now, steps 10 and 11, as have been described, keep me focused on cleaning up the past and keep me focused on being in the present. Step 12 is, for many people, the most significant of all the steps because it is the one that is born out of desperation. It is the final step that was understood in the history of AA that was finally understood as an absolute necessity, the necessity of carrying the message to other people, no matter whether they understand the message, get it, or recover themselves. I need to carry the message more than the person who hears me may need to have that message heard, may need to hear that message, because it keeps me out of myself in a very practical way. can just uh, quote uh, Clancy, the great AA speaker who calls alcoholics pukes. He says, you you deal with a puke outside yourself in order to keep from being with the puke inside yourself. And that's a very graphic truth for me. I am desperate to carry the message. You know, we've heard uh, over the course of the last, uh, well, two hours, we've heard many different ways of approaching the 12 steps. I love the big book way, but I have many friends, including some of those who have spoken, who work the steps differently from the way I work them. But they have, we all have one thing in common. We work hard. 
we work hard both at the steps and we work hard at carrying the message to other people. And that working hard is what really, in the end, makes the difference. For Dr. Bob, it was the absolute salvation. For, for Bill Wilson in Akron, Ohio, when he was about to drink, it was the absolute salvation. And Dr. Bob talks about it in, in, in Dr. Bob's Nightmare, the need to carry the message. So the hard work is what is necessary. And how hard we work at it depends on how desperate we are. And that really, I guess, goes back to our understanding of step one and our understanding of step two and, how hard, and what our decision has been in step three and how hard we've worked steps four through nine and what our recovery is like and how hard we work to keep it clean in step 10 and how hard we work to keep our conscious contact with our higher power in step 11. But it comes out in step 12. It, it all focuses in step 12. Well, we are not thinking of ourselves, we are thinking of others and how we can help others and be of help to them. Um, the big book says uh, on, on uh, page, oh, I always forget, page 63, when we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. And the promises of uh, the whole program, which are found on page 63, being all powerfully provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. Um, as we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. And in the chapter, Working with Others, on page, if I can remember it, um, I think it's 99. Nope, it's 90. Oh, my goodness. It's embarrassing. I have it all here, and I've forgotten it. It is the, the chapter that says, um, it is the place that says, oh, uh, your role, page 102, 102. Sorry, guys. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So that's our job description. We must be of maximum helpfulness to others. Now, to be of maximum helpfulness to others requires things that occasionally in OA, I don't see. And I think we, we have to, as, as, a, as a group, really think about what our message is like. Uh, first of all, it has to be clear. Uh, and I'm not sure that we give a clear message in OA. When people come to our meetings and when, they, when we speak to newcomers, what do we say to them? I too often hear, oh, welcome to OA. Here you get unconditional love. Here we understand you and we give you love. Well, you know what? Our primary purpose, the primary purpose of every OA group is to carry the message of recovery to those who still suffer, not the message of love, even though there is love behind that message. And do our meetings and do we as individuals carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps to those who still suffer? A good friend of mine in the program uh, said, and I'm sure he was quoting someone else, something like, compassion without honesty can kill. They said, honesty without compassion is cruel but compassion without honesty can kill. It enables people. And I so often hear in, I, listen, I did it myself, 
within the uh, walls of OA, people killing with kindness. I was killed with kindness for about six years in this program until the shyest person in the room met me and said, how are you doing? And I mean, really, how are you doing? Because I had been relapsing. And all kinds of people were saying to me, how are you, Laurie? I said, fine. And they said, good, good, good to hear you're fine. And no one except the shyest person in the room, and frankly, the most spiritual, who prayed over this for a long time, came up to me and said, what are you really doing? What's going on with your program? Uh, once she did that, I was able to admit defeat. Once she did that, I was able to have to be open again, uh, as I was when I first joined the program, to figuring out what I had done wrong and not to make those mistakes again, which is what happened approximately 21 and a half years ago. Uh, I began to rework the steps after I was confronted with love, but with honesty by this person. And I began to work the steps with a desperation I had not felt. Uh, before. So this whole concept of working hard and this whole concept of desperation is important if the message is clear and our message is that we must carry the message to others and not simply hug and love them. Sometimes the big book says we have to let them go until they really understand these things. Leah, I've, I've missed track of my time. I don't know how much time I have left or whether I have any left. You have five minutes left. Oh, great. Okay. So, uh, thank you. I'm very, very sorry. I got too involved in talking. Um, I, 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 I want to, you know, quote from uh, page 96 of the big book. that says, don't be discouraged if your prospect doesn't respond at once. Search out another alcoholic again. You're sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. Now, I don't equate that with firing my sponsees because I've never fired a sponsee. I equate that with focusing on what my job is with that person. It is not to love them or to spend much time with them or even to have them become, or especially to have them become dependent on me. The big book says the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts in God and clean house. It says we simply do not, uh, well, some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth, job or no job, wife or no wife. We simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence on God. When I sponsor, I want to make sure that people understand I am not, they are not to become dependent upon me. They're to become dependent on their higher power. And the way they become dependent on their higher power is to work the steps. That's how they're going to find the power that is greater than themselves, to working the steps. And once they find that higher power, higher power, they will know what dependence upon that higher power will mean for them. And step 11 will teach them as they work it, how depending upon their higher power, the power that is greater than themselves, uh, depending on that will give them a much greater uh, uh, sense of power within their lives. Um, so, Working the steps with another person requires a clear message, a lack of dependence on you, honesty, as well as compassion. However we do it, it those are the criteria. And I, I cannot um, 
talk specifically. I don't, I'm not going to talk specifically about how, how I do it because I don't think that's really important. All kinds of people uh, do it in so many different ways because it's such a personal way. But we owe a duty to those who still suffer to be clear about what our problem was and then to be clear that the steps were the solution. If people came to OA looking solely for support, they should be f- feeling that they're not getting what they want because support only is what a whole bunch of other groups give. We give them the 12 steps, and it's in the 12 steps that they find a recovery if they have our problem. So we owe a, a duty to them to make sure that they, that they figure out whether they have our problem or not. And that means we have to explain what our problem is. And then we owe duty to them to tell them that we have found a solution to our problem within the 12 steps. You know, I could talk for too long about this, and I can talk. I, I'm, I can't really say much more. I'm going to pass. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. And thank you to all our speakers this morning. Joe M., Chelsea H., Haya P., Larry K., Howard W., Don C., Phil D., Lauren S., Ruth M., Penny C., Sharon R. S., and of course, Lori C., we thank you for your participation this morning. The promise of the 12-step process is one of a spiritual awakening. We are changed in the way we think, the way we feel, and especially in the way we behave. Our task now is to stay gently pressed up against our way of life. We lean into this spirit. We take the next indicated action, especially acts contrary to our will. We allow this spirit to lead us. And I will now close... Our meeting with the Way of Vision for You always closes its meetings, and that's from the reading on page 164 from the chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.